Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's very extraordinary if you think about actually the obsession of contemporary artists with animals and with taxidermy and with beastly life. Because if you actually think about one genre of painting, particularly painting, that seems most redundant, seems most hostile and alien from the contemporary tradition, it would, I think, be what's called sporting art or hunting art. Um, All those uh, dead deer and um, there's a wonderful entry, one one of the extremely laconic very softly humorous works in the history of art is Joshua Reynolds' account of his travels to other countries, something he was, other than classical Italy, reluctant to do. And um, he goes to the Netherlands, predictably, and kind of approves of Rembrandt, not quite his neoclassical thing. And he writes it all up in a diary, and there's one wonderful moment where there's only one line on Wednesday, 1776, or whenever it was, and he says, another dead swan by Venix. And you can hear a sort of huge, desperate sigh in his voice that this is monstrously dull to him, apart from being alien to the classical tradition. So if you think about a kind of weird, protected, oddly sort of incestuous genre, it would be really sporting prints and animal art. But animal art has been absolutely the heart of so much um, contemporary art too. How did this happen? Well, I'm going to try and tell you the story of that. That's the only thing I'm good at, storytelling. And we'll start with this little fellow. On May the 9th, 1994, a man described by The Guardian as a down-at-heel Oxford artist, doesn't get more down-at-heel than that, called Mark Bridger, walked into the Serpentine Gallery and emptied a can, a full can of black ink into Damien Hurst's Away from the Flock. And as a result, as you can see, it was extremely decisive. Appearing before a bemused London magistrate, Bridger said, talked a lot, he didn't just defend himself, he gave a kind of mini-lecture about the state of modern art and was at pains to make it clear that the gesture was not just one of a kind of random vandalism, but, as he put it, an impassioned conceptual intervention. I love his defence. You can all use this. I was in a carpe diem state of mind, he explained. Aren't we all? Um, tomorrow may not be available. Um, And in fact, he was not without sympathisers, of course, because the London tabloid press had been usual kind of Daily Mail philippics against Damien Hurst, Charlatan, and particularly, actually, at that time, when Damien was becoming known to the public, what aroused the Daily Mail and Daily Mirror wasn't worse than being a charlatan. He, He did it not just with sharks, but with... British animals in particular. So the big thing was, you know, that sheep, woolies, the woolies, are, of course, incredibly, for once you can use the word, I guess, sort of iconic about. And the fact that um, Damien Hurst seemed to use 
barnyard species, cows and sheep, the Starfarge of the English pastoral. This is a famous poster by Frank Newbold, um, published during the war to give people the sort of sense of the kind of Britain they were fighting for. Um, this only made matters worse. Bridger, on the other hand, was horrified that his action might simply be mistaken as some sort of animal rights protest. No, he said, it, what he was doing was an addendum to Damien Hirst's original idea for the piece, and he was said that he was surprised that Damien Hirst, who was very upset, was upset since they were, after all, as Mark Bridger said, said on the same creative wavelength. This may not have been a view shared by Damien Hirst. A lamb, the perennial symbol of unblemished innocence, suspended its prancing hoofs, doomed never more to gamble on the verdant sod, neither slaughtered nor alive. Well, yes, that much Mark Bridger certainly got. A piece which was all about, uh, this is Mark Bridger still, about Damien Hurst, pretty damn good criticism, actually. Life and death, the territory of what life is all about. But, said Bridger, the lamb had already made its statement. So Bridger thought it was time to give the installation another kind of life altogether, um, hence, the desire, hence the decision to ink it. Bridger now explained to an increasingly testy magistrate for the proceedings where he was a terrific lecturer, much better than me, well into their second hour, the police was now, yes, you've all got it, a black sheep, just like Damien Hurst in the court of Philistine public opinion. But even better than that, its black sheepishness had to be inferred from making the entire thing invisible. Now, he couldn't see the life of him why Damien should have been at all put out. Marcel Duchamp would surely have applauded, uh, said Bridger. Well, no, not according to the lawyer hired by Damien, a young Nigerian barrister not long out of the Middle Temple. And the magistrate was also not hugely persuaded on hearing it would cost £1,000 to restore away from the flock to its original state of suspended animation, stuck a large fine on Mr. Bridger, but he was officially of no fixed abode, so the fine got waived. But perhaps the most interesting thing in this wonderful kind of... There are great moments of um, court proceedings when occasionally, almost by inadvertently or not so inadvertently, actually a discussion about what art and what contemporary art is does actually get aired. The greatest of all was um, the Brancusi, one of the Brancusi birds, Brancusi flight pieces. You, you probably all know this story. I think in the 30s, going to the Stieglitz Gallery, and, um, uh, <laughs> and Brancusi insisted it should go through customs without any customs, but it was, it, was, it was deemed by the United States Customs Authorities as a piece of, as a metallurgical object, you know, so, so it had to be argued in court whether or not the Brancusi was art or not. So sometimes court, in the court proceedings inadvertently actually give rise to this kind of discussion. And Damien Hurst said about, you know, uh, about what he was up to here in order to get proper repair for the damage that he done, that he was, quote, a conventional artist, an odd thing for Damien Hurst to say. So it may be that everybody misheard, and the court stenographer and transcribing misheard, and what he actually said, he was a conceptual artist. But there is some sense, actually, even though calling Damien Hurst calling himself a conventional artist seems calculated to provoke howls of disbelief, 
Um, there is some respect in which he, it, if he did indeed say that, it wouldn't entirely be um, facetious or disingenuous. The strongest pieces that Damien Hirst has made, and particularly made to that point, even the spot paintings, were really all responses to the history of art, its fetish of the unique mark, um, of its very heavy pack of emblem and allegory, especially the long tradition by which art has been mobilised to sanctify sacrificial slaughter. Art itself being the agent of bleaching slaughter, of the stain of butchery, of butchery, and every both in a sense of slaughter, but also in a sense of what, how animals become meat. These strong pieces, and here's of course a response to Palaiula in uh, Hearst Saint Sebastian, are I think a kind of droll but questing puzzlement in the face of sacred ritual that makes sacrifice the condition of redemption. This doesn't necessarily. The, the kind of puzzlement, the kind of quizzical stance that Damien Hurst has about that doesn't, I think, mark him out as irreligious. In fact, actually, I'd say some of his, uh, some of the pieces you may know, this is one of the saints and apostles, I forget one, I think it's St. John. Some of these sort of Baroque blood-splashed cabinets representing the saints and martyrs suggest that he's very, very much engaged in a serious way, I think, with the relationship between blood, slaughter, and sacrificial transcendence, that he is not so much irreligious as you might say, I suppose, quizzically a-religious, in the position of someone, say, like a Martian, someone sort of, you know, uh, brought in from another planet, landing somewhere, let's say, between Palermo and Syracuse, looking at a particularly ferocious kind of wayside shrine, and who, who inquires you know, excuse me, what is going on here? Would this elaborately blood-dripped crucifixion be your god, your hero? And when taken to a mass nearby and told he'd be about to eat the body of the god or hero and drink his blood would have some difficulty disguising his bemusement. So I think Damien Hirst, who sometimes gets into too much trouble um, and talked about as a poser, someone too clever by half, seems to me that in some of the kind of animal pieces of his earlier career, it's actually not the pose of sardonic cynicism at all going on, but that of a kind of provoking innocent. What these kinds of works do, it seems to me, is to take the truisms of sacred art, the assumptions that we all take for granted when we go and see Christian Art and National Gallery or wherever in, in Italy, within the workings of Christian iconography, the euphemisms that make possible uh, benedictions or epiphanies, and what her stars in a kind of sort of clever emperor's new clothes way wonder if there is not in the sort of relationship between butchery, if you like, or crucifixion and redemption, something a bit carnally peculiar going on. So the aim, I take it, is to make problematically visible as if, you know, these things were the object of, of conversionary spectacle, the largely unquestioned assumptions that enable us, believers and unbelievers alike, to read the depiction of ritual butchery, butchery, and after all, it's a butchery that's, that's designed by an omniscient creator as an act of interceding compassion. If you want to put it another way, 
an art, a theology, a meeting of art and theology that is not deeply Buddhist. So Damien Hirst selects, I think, his targets quite carefully and often from the academy. Hirst is himself more, even though it's very uncool to be a kind of walking encyclopedia, we know a lot of his generation. Mark Quinn... You know, Mark is much more forthright about the enormous encyclopedic sort of knapsack of learning and art history he carries around on his shoulders. But I think Damien Hirst really is very engaged with the weirdness of mid-19th century painting, and uh, particularly the kind of work pretty much contemporaneous with the um, Great Exhibition of 1851 that unveiled a radically new kind of sacred painting. Attacked by many critics as exhibits in a fright show, the screaming colours, which were for the very first time squeezed from uh, chemically industrially produced tubes rather than from bladders, and the brutally hot light. Pre-Raphaelites, Holman Hunt, scapegoat Corsair, Millet Rossetti, the gifted outrider for Mannix Brown, knew exactly what they were doing. They were really a kind of YBA gang. They absolutely were. Theirs... um, as, you know, their kind of painting, as Ruskin saw, actually, and Carlyle even saw and admired, was meant as Christian attack painting for a profanely, um, a profanely materialist, visually meretricious age. Garishness in an age in which kind of polite polish, in which a sort of, you know, suburban polish was thought to be high taste. The way to attack it and to kind of rip rip away the cataract of boring bourgeois taste um, was to be to have the integrity of garishness varnish and finish were the lies a wonderful word used of course by Rossetti required by the lazy eye and the corrupt market the pre-Raphaelites meant to open eyes if necessary as they said often by kind of optical shock surgery and they did it compulsively with sheep Perhaps they, and perhaps Damien Hirst, had in mind the mother of all sheet paintings. This one, you all know it. Hubert and Jan van Eyck's Adoration of the Sacred Lamb at the Cathedral of Saint-Bavon in Ghent. But although as a sinecure of fleety fetishism, the great triptych has never been surpassed, in some ways it would have been a slightly odd archetype for the pre-Raphaelites, since it was with the van Eyck brothers that oil emulsion, a sacred altarpiece painting, this kind of hard, gen-like, faux naturalism became instituted, not just in Flanders, but through the Medici bankers in Antwerp all the way down to Florence, of course. It was, it was northern painting that, in some sense, gave rise to freestanding oil painting in the south through uh, figures like Hugo von Hus. That's why you see so many um, Hugo von Hus paintings in the Uffizi, um, what the Van Eycks did was to signal an end of what the pre-Raphaelites thought was a kind of pre-lapsarian moment of painterly innocence when everything had aspired to the condition of fresco. Uh, fresco, by definition, impulsive, uncalculated, monastic transparency in the work of, say, Giotto, and maybe continued on with Masaccio. So it was that imagined prelapsarian childlike transaction between devotion and representation that the most intense of the pre-Raphaelites aspired. They were themselves affecting the air of the black sheep of the academy when their hearts and hands, they often like to say, were, or in so many words, 
pure as the driven snow. They not only knew what they were doing with animals, but they knew why they were doing it. It was uh, the innocence of animals, of domestic animals in particular, um, happened to be brought to paint at a moment, uh, a very crucial moment in British history, um, a moment when the standing of the British Empire in the world um, was essentially that of an industrial juggernaut. But people like Carlyle and Ruskin and Charles Dickens and uh, some others as well, Cardinal Newman, wanted to change all that, wanted to actually say what Britain was, was a Christian empire. And the Crystal Palace exhibition of 1851 was designed in both in form and content to bring those things together, to bring the great machines, which were the British financial Deutsche Bank boast in the world, together with a much smaller space that was given over through Pugin to a kind of gothic, sacred assembly space that could harken back to the Christian ideals that Ruskin and Carlyle believed only those would redeem Britain from a kind of crude, callow, superficial materialism, the age of machinery, as Carlyle damned it. So the pre-Raphaelites, like Fall Mannix Brown, you're looking at pretty bar lambs here, reimagine Britain, or rather England, it was really rather English, I have to say, as a pastoral idyll, the sheepfold, above all the sheepfold. Fall Mannix Brown, he made a wonderful figure, much sort of under thought and written about, I think, actually. Doesn't, never really quite accepted into the kind of flighty... Um, dandified pre-Raphaelite circle, but very much sharing their sensibility. Um, but also for Maddox Brown, so interesting because it had a huge chip on his shoulder about his working-class origins. So he paints his working-class wife, Emma, as a modern Madonna in Pretty Bar Lambs, holding their infant daughter in a paradisial sunlit meadow. The painter goes to enormous lengths in this picture to give the picture the wide-eyed, startling intensity, not just posing his own family for hours on end, but actually ordering the, the demands of Erismo, sheep and lamb, to be brought in wagons every morning from Clapham Common to his studio garden in Stockwell, where much to for Maddox Brown's displeasure, and not to mention his wife, the, the animals grazed on the prized flowers in their herbaceous border. To add insult to injury, when he shows the painting in the Royal Academy, it was denounced by critics, even the critics who'd liked for Maddox Brown's Jesus washing the feet of Peter. This painting, they said, was, quote, puerile. Later in the century, and this might strike you as even odder than the initial denunciation, Pretty bar lambs, and particularly this hot, mad, wild, startling light. I mean, John Curran, John Curran absolutely could have painted this, um, was hailed by critics like R.E.M. Stevenson, no relation to the novelist, as revolutionary, precisely because it was so weird and freaky and strange and of the world, but not of the world. The beginning of modern painting, R.E.M. Stevenson called Pretty Bar Lambs. He wasn't alone, of course, his Holman Hunt. Um, uh, with two famous paintings, The Hireling Shepherd and um, Our English Coasts. And um, uh, Holman Hunt also was treated in the same way, um, but the, what was the critics minded in the case of this picture, The Hireling Shepherd, was the unnatural glare of the green sword, as he put it, but it was the kind of rawness of the shepherd himself, the kind of strange, rough brutality in this in this picture. But both the pictures were really about 
England. They were about England even more than Britain, and they were really about England's relationship to the church. Extraordinary. Holman Hunt, you'll know probably, ex-office clerk from Cheapside, kind of shabby-suited, idiot-savant, would relentlessly tell people that these were both new kinds of religious pictures. The hireling shepherd, a parable of the untoward results of dereliction of duty, registered, you may just be able to see in the slide, there's a death's head. The, the shepherd is holding up a death's head moth, you know. Um, so kind of the sort of rendered again with the kind of proto-Hurstian hyper-realism, the moth not unlike Damien's obsession with butterflies, which I'll come back uh, a bit later, presented to the girlfriend while the sheep, as you can see, are just falling about with massive sheep load. The second painting is also about the fate of England. So the notion is that the shepherd, of course, actually, um, he's not doing his job. He's not keeping the sheep. So the, the sheep, the flock is in danger from the ever uh, predatory blandishments of the Roman church, of the Catholic church, that's the point. The same thing too here. Um, when Christian pastors neglect their flock, that, that happens, something of the same sort of danger will happen. This picture on our English coast was painted and shown in 1852 and it had the same sort of sheep bell toxin effect. Um, but with an immediately recognisable historical association. Of course, those are the Fairlight Cliffs near Hastings. And in 1852, there was a weird kind of scare of a French invasion. Louis Napoleon had declared himself, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte declared himself emperor. There was a kind of brief moment that the southern coasts of England might be vulnerable to yet another kind of Norman Congress. Crazy and paranoid and hysterical this now seems, Holman Hunt knew that the Duke of Wellington himself, who in his dotage could never quite take his mind off the French threat, even though he died in 1852, but the sense in which there was a real threat, not just from France, but from, again, the alien Catholic Church. So through the form of sheep, a sheep epic, um, Holman Hunt was, was trying to supply some sort of memorial tribute to the Duke of Wellington's perpetual vigilance on behalf of the Protestant autonomy and integrity of Christian England. Few seem to have got these rather abstruse historical points that maybe not surprisingly Holman Hunt is making. But maybe 140 years later, Damien Hirst did at least enough to want to empty out all this cumbersome, laborious tradition of sheepy allegory planted in the middle of English um, artistic sensibility. All the high Victorian sheep paintings, now a lot more I could have shown you, believe me, and even perhaps a sort of 20th century pastoral like Henry Moore's rather wonderful little drawings you see at the top right there. Um, whether safely grazing or in peril. By suspending a single lamb in a visual and material limbo forever away from the flock, Damien Hirst, I think, managed a kind of neatly bleak image of permanent alienation. Remember the sort of, the, you know, all of you know your scripture, New Testament. There are, there's two huge sheep moments in the New Testament. Um, of the sacred sacrificial lamb. The first is the moment when John the Baptist greets Jesus as the Lamb of God, whose blood, whose blood, it's important that he's good, the, the lamb is going to be dead, 
will wash away the sins of mankind. The entire meaning of Jesus' human incarnation is as a penitential oblation that will remove, unstain our disgrace of the fall. And more adamantly, of course, John the Evangelist in the book of Revelations, where the unblemished lamb emerges victorious to coincide with the resurrection over satanic evil. Both those visions presuppose the necessity of death, of a kind of sheep sacrifice. So I think by denying um, the sentimental reunion of you and lamb, a la Henry Moore, or the sacrificial laving in the redemptive love, Damien Hirst strips his chemically embalmed woolly jumper of, of consolatory magic. He doesn't let us get away with that. Which is not to say that the creature is meaningless. Its pathetic isolation seems perhaps more reminiscent of another Victorian icon that you've already seen, Holman Hunt's scapegoat, give, driven into the wilderness to sponge up the iniquities of the whole world. There is nothing between us and the scapegoat but the basin of the mountains of Moab, the salt flats of the Dead Sea. Hurst's lamb, and indeed his bisected cattle, on the other hand, are encased within a kind of hermetically sealed-off tank that the artist makes plain as an intrinsic element in the impact of his work, not just, you know, the, the, the case is not just a container of convenience. There's the screaming pope and the bisected cows, Francis Bacon, of course, actually, in that little kind of weird roped-off area, sort of miniaturized boxing ring that Francis Bacon sometimes made it into an entire trapped cube. And lately, Damien Hirst has been, if anything, doing too much in the way of imitating that, I think. But the legend, the point here, I think, is that the legend framing around the glass um, is, sure, a footnote to Francis Bacon um, when Bacon wanted to convey a sense of the confining artificiality of representation, when Bacon, unlike Holman Hunt, wants to say, this is a show. Those taxidermized pieces out there really want to proclaim, advertise, possibly in a jejune way, their showiness, not the sort of assumption that you're actually face-to-face with um, with an animal. So the frame of art in that kind of stance becomes a kind of cognitive jail, a glassed-off barrier through which the imprisoned subject and the casual visitor, a spectator here, establish a necessarily partial communication. Francis Bacon and Damien Hirst, I think, also share a scepticism about the quasi-mystical pseudo-religious claims made for the immortality of art over the necessarily mortal subjects art represents. Hirst's lamb, of course, is not immortal, nor the bisected cattle pieces, any more than his shark, notoriously in danger of decomposition. The shark and the cattle and the lamb are merely cryogenically perpetuated, which isn't the same thing. The fascination with what we might call um, neither world rather than a nether world, with suspended termination, does seem to have been a preoccupation with a generation of artists for whom the dialogue between presence and absence, memory and oblivion, embodiment and disembodiment, history and contemporaneity, does seem to be this argument about here, there, today, yesterday, tomorrow, does seem to be obsessively and compulsively British. 
This is Mark Quinn in a funerary garden he made for the Fondazione Prada in Milan in 2000 and turned his rather clever gaze on the paradoxes implied in the, if you think about it for a minute, oxymoronic formulation, still life, rendered even more problematic if you take the original French, nature morte, or still labor, still labor in, in Dutch, and on yet a, another British preoccupation, so at least as British as sheep in the sheepfold, um, flower gardening. Quinn has thought about the way cut flowers cut flowers, conventionally used in Christian and most other traditions to mark a passing, actually a pagan tradition taken originally from the ancient Egyptian world. But cut flowers, of course, in the Quinn conceit here, must themselves necessarily decay as soon as the funeral rites are over. Rather in the manner of Damien Hirst's frozen gambling lamb, Quinn has accommodated the um, contradictory yearning, both for the presence of vegetable decay, the organic presence, things let them decay, and re-fertilize, of course, re-fertilize, let them decay into the earth, um, the earth which receives the dead. Then, the, so the, the fertilized earth, fertilized with decaying organic matter, will body forth the vegetation of another spring, another resurrection. And on the other hand, there's the equally strong desire to fix memory, fix them by freezing bouquets in a silicon dip, which preserve them, rather like the lamb, as if embalmed in unnatural brilliance. You forbid them to decay forever at the supersaturated height of their blooming. Now, you know, why all this obsession with mortality, decay, petrification, resurrections, denied or granted? Maybe that's what Damien Hirst meant when he owned up to being a so-called conventional artist. For there has seldom been a generation of artists for whom the issue of mortality, decay, fixing, embalming, a kind of aesthetic taxidermy has not been the big question. Why else does the grieving Madonna, the Pietà, who ought to have the aspect of a grieving matron, instead have the countenance, like Mark Quinn's unearthly supersaturated tulips, of a perpetually beauteous youth? So I want to make the case that while the beastliness of a lot of contemporary art does, uh, I'm, I'm giving it the credit for doing this, and I, I I think it's not too much of a stretch, represent an engagement with the purposes of art. It also represents a response to our own endurance in and possibly tolerance of the usual themes of monstrous atrocity. And it's true there's every age. in Some have had art really engage with atrocity, um, with bloodiness, with butchery, with carnage, and, and some don't. But it does seem to me a hallmark of some interesting contemporary art, or art of the relatively recent period, um, that unlike the sort of high-minded self-referentiality of abstract art, it's sort of ontological narcissism, or the jokey narcissism of pop art, of, of Warhol and Jasper Johns. Some contemporary art in, in the British tradition does make some effort to represent the problematic relationship between slaughter, cruelty, and the way it gets bleached out in aesthetic convention. 
Um, so in some sense, I think our contemporary artists or relatively recent artists have pitched in in the argument about how the classical tradition has been dismembered in um, the, the present age. And trying to do so, this is Jenny Saville, by the way, of course, you'll recognize it, um, without banal documentary literalism. Now, I'm sure that many contemporary artists, you know, this was something much on Bacon's mind, of course, neither Bacon nor Hearst, there's him with butchery. Neither of them would want to really claim any particular kind of originality. They know that the relationship between butchery, between the meat we eat, and the theological background, the whole thrust of Christian theology, was weirdly kind of indirectly engaged with in kitchen scenes of the 16th century. This is um, Joachim Berkeler, for example, with the ambiguously framed inset of Christ in the house of Martha and Mary. There is Agostino Caracci, for example, um, took his frank display of hanging meat. That may have been the source of Francis Bacon. But the move back from the kitchen to the butcher's shop um, nudges ostensibly innocent genre pieces into a confrontation with the meaning of slaughter. And that's contemporary art, or at least modern art, in Francis Bacon's way, anyway, wanted to actively engage with, especially maybe in Rembrandt's flayed ox, slaughtered ox in the, on the ox carcass. Because it is the Reformation, that the attack on being able to do sacred painting at all, that the Reformation in the Netherlands necessarily displaces things you want to say about New Testament theology into things like the side of meat there, the slaughtered opened carcass of the ox. Rembrandt, after all, had actually become famous and somewhat rich by carrying out and executing a project on the Passion of Christ. And some of you may know the even earlier Passion, which was a sort of um, variant on Rubens, where for the first time, the crucified Christ, it is a kind of lama lama, it's God, God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of the ennobled, transfigured, ultimately beautiful sacrifice face, is a kind of man screaming in tortured terminal pain. Absolutely amazing thing. So Rembrandt's constantly coming back to that, you know, this sort of weird meditation on the relationship between pain, flesh, and transfiguration. And ten years before The Slaughtered Ox, with its really staggering kind of exposure of shiny, smart, slick, oozy viscera, he'd done something really weird anyway. Um, In the 1650s, he'd actually done this extraordinary pair of partridges, which again decided to actually change the aesthetic norms, the euphemisms, we might say the euphemisms representation. Because instead of, you'll know that all those dead swans that Reynolds was complaining about, you never actually see blood. In this case, this is a little oil painting um, that's in the Rex Museum. The crucial thing is that that blood is incredibly blood-like. It's a kind of thin layer of blood which drips onto a stone ledge. When he sort of goes to the flayed ox to, you know, very... 
Uh, is this fair to Rembrandt? Proto-Hurstian description of sinew, muscle, bone, fat. What you see in the ox, paradoxically, is a living animal rather than a dead animal because it's sort of splayed out there and because actually Rembrandt lovingly uses the knife. It's a painting almost entirely done with a palette knife to actually describe and gouge and paste and cut and slather. You get this extraordinary sense of meaty animal vitalism coming out of this image rather than something which is sort of frozen in an acceptable kind of um, acceptable kind of deadness. Chaim Soutine, whose picture you see on the right, certainly thought Rembrandt was the first. He may not have been the first, but Soutine thought he was, to invite the analogy between the butcher's knife and the palette knife. Um, he writes an, a wonderful little diary entry about that. And actually, the girl with dead partridges, which I just showed you, it already set Soutine off on a whole set of uh, wonderful expressionist pictures of slaughtered birds, really fantastic, fantastic paintings. So it's paradoxically the unnerving vitalism of Rembrandt's brush and knife style in the ox which triggers this feverish kind of homage, um, or as Mark Bridger would have said, addendum. So Jean, you may know, it's an amazing story, was supplied by a local Paris slaughterhouse, so he became very close to butchers with a huge beef carcass um, for which he paid 3,500 francs. It was a lot of money. And the thing hung on a hook in Soutine's studio in the Rue Saint-Gotard and became so horrible to the nose, it smelt, stunk so badly that um, blue bottles gathered in their millions around it. And eventually, this being Paris and France, uh, a visit from the inspectors of san sanitation. But rather than marching Soutine to the lockup with his sort of stinking, fly-blown carcass, um, the nice inspector of sanitation brought round um, a huge bucket of formaldehyde. Hurst would have loved him the next day. And so he was very grateful, saying, yes, this will do the job, but won't be so unpleasant for the neighbours. But he said, also, formaldehyde dries out the carcass so that the lurid rawness, its sense of the relationship between Christian sacrifice and butchery, would no longer, it was too much like a dead painting. So he had an answer for this, did Chaim Soutine. He got his girlfriend, of course, to go to the slaughterhouse every single day to fetch buckets of blood, which he'd slosh over the carcass every single day. Fantastic. So it's a sort of daily irrigation of blood that, according to Soutine, brought home, as he insisted, the Judaic origins. He was thinking of temple sacrifice in Jerusalem, which had been projected. He thought this explained the whole Christian obsession that had started with temple sacrifices and had become transmogrified some, somehow into the Christian sacrifice. There's a sense, of course, in which Soutine's extravagance connives at that which he purports to dismantle, the classical tradition of agonized heroic sacrifice. The Jacobean, the fantastic, ferocious blood and guts drama of the brush actually participates in a kind of vitalism of slaughter, rather like Picasso's endless gourd horses and matadors in the bullring. And there have been predictable attempts to make Soutine a prophet of the Holocaust. That, I think, is not actually right at all. Um, but certainly, 
there is a sort of sense in which, really, he's thinking about the, the 20th century and its relationship to agonized images, which is perhaps, again, where Damien Hurst's butcher shops and anatomical cabinets come in. The anatomical cabinets are, after all, I'm showing you an image at the bottom right there, from the cabinet in St. Petersburg um, that Peter the Great bought from a Dutch um, surgeon, anatomy, a public anatomist, and who specialised in elaborately decorated fetuses taken from, from uh, women who died in childbirth. And sort of Hurst's encyclopedism is perfectly aware of this, and the longitudinal bisections in their precision are meant to do away not only with the legacy of the classical argon, but also a newer and more secular tradition, very strong, by which prized farm animals are turned into expressly patriotic sustenance. The achievement of, of 18th century painters who specialised in big animals was to take ungulate bovine heft and say this represents the beef of old England. That was very important for, um, for Hogarth. So while much of the what we think of as the beastliness of contemporary art is sort of averse to sententiousness, it doesn't mean that some of its exercises, as Bruce Nauman's hanging carousel, are really averse to, to making us think a bit about the relationship not between butchery and, and salvation, um, but certainly between the relationship between the carnage of war, the industrial processing of our food, and the actual organic vitalism of the animals themselves. They are often, when they're strong and powerful and sinister, they are about the machinery of butchery. And they do seem to me to aim at something slightly more powerful or considered than simply another pedestrian piety about the brutishness of the times. And I want to switch just for the last 10 minutes to a horsey moment, because really, you know, London is now, I mean, well, full, or contemporary art is full of horsey moments. There's, you know, the promise of Mark Wallinger's giant horse over the Ebbsfleet station, you know, horsepower motoring past the kind of giant Trojan horsey figure. But if actually sheep and cattle, domestic animals, they are essential, essentially, whether we're talking about the old master tradition, the Victorians, or Hurst and Saville and Butchery and Soutine now, the horse story, which is, again, a huge obsession of contemporary art, is different. It's really, if you're going to attack that, if you're going to attack equestrian imagery, if you're going to attack the, a particular tradition by which beast and animal, horse and rider, reinforce each other in godlike, godlike omnipotence. And they do it sort of in different ways. There's the back house um, on the left, which is undoubtedly heartfelt, the, the memorial to... Um, animal, animals in war designed for a lament on cruelties inflicted on animals, again a subversion of the notion that men and horse are always in perfect harmony together um, but it's, it's compromised I think, not so much by its sentimental literalism than it's, it has serious conceptual confusion because it, although Backhouse is trying to summon up the spirit of the antique relief and to some extent of animalio sculpture of the 19th century wall, he's mixed genres in a way, and I'm not against mixing genres, but in this point, it almost comes close to self-parody. Um, the three-dimensional mules appearing to contemplate their own likeness on the curving walls, if they were 
um, members of the family of Vietnam fallen soldiers in Maya Lin's memorial on the Washington Mall. Much better than confused literalism, I think, is this Berlinda de Breikera take on equine pedigree, the cultish obsession with bloodlines and breeding that goes back through the production of cavalry and racehorses instead of a specimen perfected by calculations of sire and dam, Belinda de Breikera has stitched together, literally, these are different horses brought together, a horse of many parts that undergoes vertebral collapse from the disaster of its misconstruction. So it's a horse that cannot possibly be fulfilled the destiny of uh, a kind of embalmed, embalmed bloodline heroics. It's a joke, although a black one, it is called the black horse, thrown back at all the projections on animal kingdoms of invincibility. Myths concocted by art to give raw power the dressing of physical grace. Very interesting for us, though, in the British tradition, since Mark Wallinger has particularly expressed his debt to Stubbs, is that moment in the 18th century, we've got rid of the autocratic notion of the supreme monarch being able to keep his composure while the horse's hooves are lifted in this impossible stance of the Levard. In the middle of the 18th century, the kind of um, the mana of authority, of royal authority, is redistributed uh, in a way to a much broader society. The aristocratic or kingly war horse gives way to the racehorse, the courtier artist, the sporting painter. There were lots of them. James Seymour, sorry, Gilpin, but above all, of course, Stubbs. Stubbs changed the nature of the genre from equestrian portraits to horse portraiture. Um, jockeys were important, but the horses were, for the first time, more important. And the secret of his success in persuading us that he was representing sort of horsey persona lay in his mastery of equine body language, the flare of a nostril, the widening of an eye, the fixing of gait and substance. Stubbs was the first person to realize and write that for the longest time, horsey representation had been a matter of conforming to formulaic and sometimes fanciful templates, horse anatomies from the Renaissance. Stubbs thought you had to do it all over again before you could make genuine equine portraits. He's not a sentimentalist. Um, he thinks of himself as a true anatomist. In other words, the crucial thing for Stubbs was to use death to inform the trick of life. And he does it in the anatomical atlas, here's two plates, which make his fame and fortune. And it's a sort of deliberate, again, reproof to, I'm invoking him again, Sir Joshua Reynolds, for whom the training of artists had to be um, figure classes, had to be live, nude figures, or, or, or figures, of course, from classical statuary. Um, Stubbs instead goes to Rome. He does the sort of artist equivalent of the Grand Tour, but he leaves very, very quickly, goes back to England, closets himself away with his mistress in a Lincolnshire village, and has horses brought to his attic studio where Stubbs would hang the horses from a contraption from the ceiling and then methodically bleed them to death while they hanged there. As I said, he was no sentimentalist. Injecting, as they were half alive still, the veins and arteries with tallow to preserve their external appearance through the skin. Eventually, Stubbs proceeded to a complete flaying and thence to a careful systematic dissection. Fantastically gothic story. But Stubbs himself gloried in it. He felt it was only 
journey from this shocking, protracted intimacy in which love and death were bloodily commingled, that then he could liberate the horse from its confinement in all the old conventions in equestrian painting and to a pure animal painting, um, an equine nude, a horse that had never been saddled. This was a moment caught on the cusp between anatomy and romance that um, Stubbs, and really only Stubbs, caught um, before there were all sorts of romantic cliches. I want to show you the Maurizio Catalan because um, Maurizio Catalan converted in this, in this work a harness expressly designed to transport resources safely from stall to stable with minimum risk to life and limb to exactly the opposite, to a harness that exhibits their permanent lifelessness. So he makes an amazing end run, really, around all those perpetually alive chargers, David's Napoleon crossing the Alps, Leonardo's Battle of Anghiari. Taxidermy, then, has been something close to a cult obsession with our contemporary artists, the chemistry of the morgue. We get it, we get it. You often want to howl in some of the presence of the postmodern confections. Now show me something you've really pondered, not just a high school truism about the world drowning in the bloody slops of the abattoir. That, my God, we especially get. Give us something more. And back they come to say, no, it's not just really a banal piety about isn't the world a butcher's shop. The reason we dip our carcasses into formaldehyde, why we or our many hirelings are so busy stuffing and stitching, is because we are making a point about art itself. The unself-consciousness by which all representation is actually a form of gutted up taxidermy, the mechanical, chemical fixing of fugitive moments. What we are pricking with our needles is art's pretension to defeat time, to transform mortality into vitality, to avert the gaze. This is what art does, our modernists want to say, Art tries to avert our gaze from putrefaction. What is art in this transgressive mode they have? The victory over decay. But guess what they say? And Damien Hurst might even concede with his decaying shark. It can't be done. The end result of all that effort is simply a subspecies of deadness. The contrary gesture that they're making in much of their work is to foreground exactly the repugnant processes, the fake aesthetic of the perfect death. Thank you. <laughs>